Good morning, everybody. How are you doing? Um, the scripture today is taken from the book of Matthew, and I'll be reading from chapter 16, verses 21 through 27. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be to someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is, come, is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Hase. Well, we are finishing up today our summer-long sermon series called The Questions of Jesus, where each week we've been looking at one of the questions that Jesus has posed to those that he bumps into the street, onto, in the street, or a stranger, the crowds around him, or one of his disciples. They're questions that he not only posed to them many years ago, but also questions for us. And today we are wrapping up that series with one final question, and uh, next week we will be having a guest preacher, uh, Pastor Andrew Russell from Grace Downtown, uh, and so we are greatly looking forward to that. But one more question of Jesus, one more, let's take a look, but let's first pray together. God, we thank you for this time to look at your word, and more than looking with our eyes looking with the eyes of our hearts. We want to see you. And in seeing you, we also want to see ourselves, uh, to evaluate our hearts, to bring ourselves honestly before you, that we might be changed, changed by your grace. And so please come, give us ears to hear, give us grace in this time. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This past week, I did a little Google search, and I punched in the search terms, successful people. Uh, just to note, I was doing that for this sermon. Those aren't my normal search terms in Google. And it was interesting to see what the top of that search results page produced and the different names and faces that were presented before me. I wonder what guesses you might come up with as far as who Google believes to be successful people. 
a couple of representatives here. Bill Gates, Michael Jordan, Henry Ford, Jeff Bezos, Albert Einstein, Mark Zuckerberg, Stephen King, Tom, Tom Brady, J.K. Rowling, Beyonce, Taylor Swift, John D. Rockefeller. I don't know if any of those names you might maybe question or challenge, say, I don't know if they should be on the list. Maybe you have others that you think ought to also be on that list. These are individuals that someone or some algorithm at least had determined were people that had in some sense gained the whole world, that were successful, had made it, that had achieved something. I wonder if I were to Google and search the database of your heart or even of my own, who would make the cut? Who do we look upon and see as models of success, maybe even objects of our envy? Maybe more importantly, another question. I wonder if we were to Google God's heart, whose picture do you think might appear? Who are the people that might fit the definition of successful people according to God's kingdom? And would that list surprise us? We're heading into September, the start of all things fall. For many of us, it's also the start of new endeavors, things we're trying to achieve, goals that you're trying to set. For many of you, young and old, new school years that are about to begin. Some of you are new to our church and our city because you're beginning a new job. The fall, the beginning of September, often marks out a, a peculiarly goal-oriented time of the year. Questions that we raise for ourselves around goal setting, around even success, whether we use those terms or not. It's a good time, I think, for us to ask the question, what exactly does success look like, particularly in the kingdom of God. Jesus raises before us a provocative question. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? What good or what profit, what advantage, what benefit would it be for someone to gain the whole world, to achieve their every goal, to be successful in the eyes of the world, and yet forfeit their soul? Have you thought of this question lately? Not only does it raise important questions about life priorities that we might have, whether explicitly, consciously, or implicitly, subconsciously. What are those priorities? But it also, this question, challenges our definitions of success. And it raises for us this important notion that Jesus really wants us, invites us to consider today. And it's this, that you can have it all. You can do it all. You can be it all and in the end still have nothing. What does true achievement look like in the kingdom of God? You see, because the economics of God's kingdom is radically different 
from ours, from the economics of our world. What's valued, what's set aside, what actually profit and gain looks like, and what loss looks like. The economics of God's kingdom is different from ours. In fact, it's rather backwards, you might say, or upside down. In fact, to understand Jesus and to follow him, whether for the first time or you continuing on your journey following him, you need to understand this paradox, the paradox of the economics of God's kingdom. We're going to look at this briefly in three different themes, points here. First, the gain that is loss. Secondly, the death that is life. And then thirdly, the loss that is gain. First, the gain that is loss. Jesus raises this question, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? And we understand, of course, that this is something like a rhetorical question. Uh, we're meant to answer it in the negative, that there, there's no good, no, no profit to gain everything and yet lose your own soul, your own life. Jesus raised the question, good bargain or bad bargain? And we're to answer, bad bargain. We're to understand as Jesus prods our hearts that even if you were to gain the whole world, if you were doing so in a manner in which you were to end up losing your soul, whether temporally or eternally, it would be bad news for you. It would be no good or gain at all. Of course, that's not how it would look like on the outside. On the outside, as far as human eyes can see and as far as human metrics can measure, it may appear like you have achieved something. It may appear like you have succeeded. It may appear like you have reached the heights, or if not the heights, at least some semblance of stability. And yet Jesus says, underneath it all, beyond what human eyes can see, there would be loss. There would be loss. Jesus is inviting us to a different kind of math, not the math of human concerns, but the math of God's concerns. There is a way to gain in this world where one plus one plus one can in fact equal zero. And in fact, it could actually equal far less than that. Is there more to life than just maximizing profit? And of course, by this I mean profit of all kinds. There is, of course, the pursuit of wealth and fame, the gaining of, of money and possessions and recognition. This is a common pursuit. Maybe it's one that actually tugs on your heart. Jesus invites us to consider all kinds of sources of wisdom, which might also include that of Jim Carrey, the well-known actor, comedian, one of the most successful of all times. He has famously said in reflection upon his own life and career, I hope everybody could get rich and famous and will have everything they ever dreamed of so they will know that it's not the answer. For some of us, it's wealth and fame. For others, 
you might say, well, no, that's, that's not my concern. That's theirs. But when you look deep inside, your pursuit, the gain that you have been chasing after, perhaps is security. Uh, to, to seek an impenetrable life. Uh, it, 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 on the surface of it seems much more noble, but in fact, in the end, might be no less debilitating than the pursuit of wealth and fame. For others of you, it's no, not, not security, but happiness. Well, there's a noble pursuit, isn't it? But what if you were to gain all the happiness in the world and yet still forfeit your soul, Jesus asks us to consider. Is that the gain that you pursue, happiness and fulfillment? Is it comfort, perhaps at all costs? Is it a spouse and a family or maybe friends? Because for you, the worst thing imaginable is to be alone. Is it your children and the raising of them, perhaps, that has become your all in all? Is it political power or cultural influence? All these things, all these different forms of gain that we might pursue or be tempted to pursue, what is it for you? More importantly, as we seek these things, will we seek them, well, at what cost? Jesus invites us to consider this. That there is a way to seek these things and yet all the while be forfeiting our souls. That word forfeit could also be translated to to suffer loss, to sustain damage. And you see, this is the upside-downness of Jesus' calculations. He's saying there's a way to seek the gain of all these things that actually are taking you deeper into moral and spiritual debt. Maybe because all the while in that pursuit you have been sacrificing your character your integrity, making compromises along the way. Maybe it's you've been running your body into the ground, sleepless nights and terrible habits of health. Maybe it's not your physical health, it's your spiritual health, a complete unwillingness to look under the hood, let alone spend time in communion with God. Maybe you're not deep into your religious journey, you're just beginning, but those questions that have been nagging at you or lingering in your minds, you've just been avoiding them, not tending towards them, losing your soul. Or maybe just all along the while, you're losing a deep sense of yourself, so fragmented is your identity chasing after the wind, this direction, that direction, you don't even know who you are anymore nor do you have the energy or commitment to figure it out. I don't want to keep on uh, beating the drum of attentiveness to the way that we relate to our work. It's not the only struggle in this room. But let's pay attention to it for a second because this is an important area of life and consideration for people in our city. What kind of forfeiting of one's soul are we encountering because of the unhealthy ways in which we might be pursuing our work? This past week, I was reading another article in The Atlantic called Workism is Making Americans Miserable. And the author, Derek Thompson, 
coined this phrase, workism, to describe the way people have come to approach their jobs nowadays with near religious devotion. And this is what he writes. Work has evolved from a means of material production to a means of identity production. It has morphed into a kind of religion promising identity, transcendence, and community. Some people worship beauty, some worship political identities, and others worship their children, but everybody worships something. And workism is among the most potent of the new religions competing for congregants. There is nothing wrong with work when work must be done, but a culture that funnels its dreams of actualization, self-actualization into salaried jobs is setting itself up for collective anxiety, mass disappointment, and inevitable burnout. Our desks were never meant to be our altars. Is this the kind of forfeiting of soul, of self, the, the suffering of loss that you see maybe signs or symptoms of in your life in pursuit of gaining the, well, maybe not even the whole world. Maybe you're, I'll just settle for a continent or maybe just a, 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 or a city-sized amount of gain and success. Now, I'm not really saying I need to be the, the most recognized, but at least, you know, somebody knows my name. It's easy for us. It's easy for us to go along and not even realize we're doing this. Sacrificing ourselves, sacrificing our commitment to Christ's church, to our own faith journeys, maybe even seeking gain in a way that makes us let go of our faith entirely. Ultimately, of course, what's at stake is our eternal destiny. Sadly, I've known too many people, some that have even been friends, who have and continue to be friends, of course, but after walking for many years a life of faith in Christ, sought to pursue some kind of material or personal success, who've chosen ways that have sacrificed their lives in Christ, their lives of faith. And it raises a question, could we actually consider them a success? Would they, would God? And of course, I'm not just talking about other people. There's that temptation within my own heart as well, right? Ways in which I have myself wrestled with questions of success and the debilitating feelings of failure. The temptations then to seek after other forms of gain, oftentimes even at the cost of forfeiture of soul. See, Jesus is calling us to a sober consideration that you can be successful, you can have gained the whole world, but lose everything. Lose yourself. Lose your soul. And many people have. Oftentimes, the very people we most envy. Christian rapper and uh, public figure Lecrae said something helpful recently. Don't envy the mouse for the cheese in his trap. Don't envy the mouse for the cheese in his trap. So often, 
we are looking to that which others have gained without actually noticing what it cost them to get there. Because it's hard to see. It's hard to recognize. It's deceptive, again, because on the surface, Jesus recognized that it looks like we might have gained a lot. And we also live in a culture that doesn't support Jesus' view of things, and rather that reinforces time and again the seduction and the invitation of gaining more in this world, even at cost of our souls. Uh, For example, again, in Googling and researching and reading for this sermon, you wouldn't believe how many articles I came across, how many articles have been written with a sort of thesis that goes like 10 famous people who failed and then bounced back. People that began as a failure, but don't worry, they soon succeeded. How much that trope has been built into our culture and even into our own minds, that failure is not acceptable, success only, and you can achieve it. You can do it. You can be it. It's hard to see this stuff. It's deceptive. It's why Jesus needs to ask us this question to point it out and invite us to consider it. Really, all he's saying is what the Old Testament wisdom writer in the book of Ecclesiastes said centuries before Jesus said it. Here's one part from Ecclesiastes 2. I try to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief life in the world. I had everything a man could desire, anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless, like chasing the wind. To keep us from falling into this trap, Jesus asks us, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? He's warning us. He's also showing us a different way. And that brings us to the second point, the death that is life. Jesus, of course, is is telling us that there's a value to our souls. There's a way of living. There's a different grid of priorities. There's a different economy of kingdom that actually commends to us life that is truly life. But it's built upon different premises. It's built upon a a totally different valuation system. It's built upon a different kingdom. One in which there is a death that is life. What we find in this passage, and especially the verses leading up to this question, is Jesus putting before his disciples in a way that just confounds them a new pattern. You might call it the pattern of the kingdom, where the way up is the way down. Jesus began to explain to his disciples, we're told in verse 21, he must go to Jerusalem, he told them, and suffer many things at the hands of the religious leaders, and that he must be killed, and on the third day then be raised to life. Well, Jesus doesn't eliminate the happy ending to the story, the story of redemption and glory. He will be raised to life. But what's the way that he said he must go in order to get there? It's the road of death. The Via Dolorosa. The way, the street of sorrows. 
his crucifixion. He must suffer. He must be killed. He must lose in order to gain. I mean, this is, this is mind-boggling. No one talks like this. In fact, no one wants to hear this. Jesus faces resistance, first from Peter. Peter took him aside, we're told in verse 22, began to rebuke him. I mean, imagine the audacity. Here's Peter, believing he knows better than Jesus, rebuking Jesus, saying, never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you, which, of course, you know, by the way that the disciples knew that they must follow their master, Peter most likely had already done the calculation that if this is the way that Jesus goes, and if Peter is Jesus' disciple, follower, then this too must be the road in which Peter goes through suffering and through death. When Peter said, never, Lord, he's also saying that for himself. This shall never happen to you. This better not happen to me. And we say the same as well. Jesus minces no words in verse 23. He says, get behind me, Satan, which just, I mean, how do you recover from that, (laughs) right? Jesus turning to you and saying that you are right now a vessel of Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. In other words, you are thinking according to the world's economy. You are thinking according to the value system of this world and not the value system of God's kingdom. You think the road to life is just life. I'm telling you the road to life is death. And then Jesus calls Peter and us to imitate him. Now, this is where we get closer to the question. He says in verse 24, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Do you hear that? Jesus said, I'm going to die. And now he just said, if you're going to follow me, you too must die. Okay, so gain is achieved not just by gain. If you really, truly want to gain and profit in this life in accordance with my kingdom, if you want gain, you must lose something, someone. If you want life, if you want to live, you must die. That's the paradigm. That's the pattern. That's the economy of Christ's kingdom. Whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. To deny yourself means to say no to ourselves. We're in a generation, of course, that promotes a message that the most important thing that you ought to do for yourself is to say yes for yourself, self-affirmation. And, of course, there's a blessed side to that. It's important, whether if it's through healthy forms of self-care or important regard of yourself. Jesus is not calling us to diminish the glory that he's invested in us as his created beings and as his children. But he is also saying, if you're to follow me, you must, as a normal pattern of obedience in life, regularly say no to yourself. And you must take up your cross, which of course is the picture of dead men walking. People that are on their way carrying their cross in order to be executed 
by the Roman state. In other words, this is an invitation to die. Not necessarily literally and physically, but spiritually and morally to relinquish control, to relinquish power that we have over ourselves, to relinquish our sense of belonging only to myself, to relinquish the right to call the shots for myself, to define the way of love, to define the way of God, and instead to say, Jesus, you're in charge. You must lead me. I will die. You must give me life I will die. Brother Pastor and author Sam Alberry comments so helpfully on this teaching of Jesus's, and I just want to read it to you. I found it so helpful myself. Jesus is saying that if we're going to follow him, we're going to have to say a profound no to some of our deepest longings and yearnings. Let me say that again. Read that again. Jesus is saying that if we're going to follow him, we're going to have to say a profound no to some of our deepest longings and yearnings. Jesus has given us advance notice that if we follow him, there will be times when it will feel like he's killing you. There will be times when it feels like he's taking life from you. Oh, note, even when he's actually giving life to you. In other words, there will be times when it will feel like and it will look like both to yourself and to outside observers that you are in that moment losing when in fact, in Jesus' name, you are gaining. Why? Because the road to life is death and the way up is down. That's the pattern of God's kingdom. And this is simply, of course, the way of love. Right? This isn't just a call to live a life in the pits or a call of mere self-denial as an end in itself. This is what it means to love God and love neighbor. This is just the way of love because C.S. Lewis was right. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Because love always involves a kind of death, sacrifice. Because to love God and to follow him, it might mean giving up comfort, saying no to some comforts. Uh, To love well, it might mean giving up reputation. Uh, To serve and love your neighbor well might mean giving up some of financial security that you otherwise might pursue. To love neighbor might mean giving up, saying no to safety because following Jesus takes you maybe into a part of the neighborhood that you otherwise might not find yourself living in. Commentator and pastor and and professor Dan Doriani writes this about this concept of denying ourselves. He says, we bear the cross when we care for the sick, comfort the afflicted, give sacrificially to the poor, Or share Christ with someone who may reject the message and despise the messenger. To bear the cross is to face the loss of anything that may be precious to us. Our money, our comfort, our time, our relationship. Jesus says there is no Christianity without the cross. So here, Jesus is calling us to a life of peculiar loss which in fact is a life of love, which in fact is a life of glory, which in fact is a life that is truly life. 
Why? Because it's a life that's marked by this, a loss that is gain. Our third point, we'll wrap up with this. Jesus asks us, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Jesus isn't calling us to mere loss that we might have nothing. He's saying, you might live a life in following me that calls you to give up so much in this world, to have a lot perhaps, but in your heart to possess nothing, to lose your life in this world in order that in your soul and in the next life, you might have all in Christ. As he says in verse 25, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Jesus is telling us we can have him, which is also to say we can have it all. All of him, all of his glory, even if it might cost us possessions in this world, and place in this world, and security in this world. But this is the way of love. Jesus' death, after all, did lead to resurrection. Verse 21 tells us he must be killed, we're told, and on the third day be raised to life. We heard earlier in our assurance of pardon these words from Romans 8, that God is a God who did not withhold anything from us, but gave up even his own son. Gave us, therefore, everything. How will he not also, along with him, along with Jesus, not give us everything? So that you might be able to say, I've given up everything in this world, and yet I am truly rich. Because I have the love of God. I have the grace of God. I have the security of God in Christ. The worst thing that can happen to me is resurrection and eternal life. I have the joy of God. I have the glory of God, the eternal fulfillment of God. I have the riches of the glory of God. I have the family of God. And I have all these things in sort of foretaste measure, appetizers, here and now, even in this life, and then also in the life to come. One person who understood this well was the martyred missionary Jim Elliott, whose name you may know. In 1956, he, along with four other colleagues and friends, in the area of what's now known as Ecuador, while bringing the gospel of grace to these people. Jim would lose his life as he was speared to death after only a few years of laboring hard to bring the message of God's love to these dear people. Several years before, he had written in his journal words that have been quoted and published often because of their poignancy and power. An expression that leads us to believe that Jim understood the economy of God's kingdom. 
understood the value system about which Jesus spoke here. Because in 1949, this is just several months after young Jim just graduated from college, he wrote these words reflecting upon God's call to expend ourselves on behalf of the poor in order that we might gain spiritual riches in heaven. He wrote, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You're not making a mistake. You're not making a, a foolish bargain. If you give up that which is not going to last anyways, that which will rust and spoil and decay, to give up the things of this world in order to gain that which you will never be able to lose, namely the love of Jesus and the glory of Jesus, namely the hope of heaven and the promises of God. This was a, a hope and a conviction that Jim lived out of, and a hope and a conviction that Jim died out of as well. Because he understood that there's nothing more secure, nothing more happy, nothing more fulfilling, nothing more glorious, nothing more wealth-making than knowing Jesus, than having him. And so when we hear Jesus' question, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? But don't forget, whoever loses their life for me, he says, will find it, will find life, will find gain, will find Jesus. Do you want him? Let's pray. And so we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would come and give us your spirit to hear these things and to take an honest accounting of our lives that we might really be able uh, to weigh these things and make the better bargain, the bargain for eternal life. Uh, Jesus, thank you for giving us your love. Thank you for giving us your spiritual riches. Thank you for giving the hope of heaven. Thank you for giving us resurrection life. Thank you for giving us meaning and security and eternal family and hope and forgiveness and all these things that we find in Christ so generously, infinitely generously change our lives with this gospel truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to give you a moment to ponder over these things. We're going to take communion in a second, but I do want to pause for a little bit of